good evening. Thanks for coming out on this uh, Thursday night. Um, tonight, uh, in a series titled Myths of the Modern American Mind, I have the, one of the most prominent myths in American culture, which is the myth of race. A hugely influential concept in our history, our psychology, our outlook, and very definitive of what it means to be an American. One thing to keep in mind as we talk about this is our view on race is neither universal in the sense of the world today nor particularly historically representative. We have a pretty peculiar, not unique, but pretty peculiar take on, on what we mean by race and how we think about it and the expressions that it takes in our culture. So not totally unique, but, but pretty close. We have a very odd take on race, Pro probably uniquely influential. Um, racism and, and just the thoughts of race uh, is hugely present in, in, in the American psyche. Um, and I see no reason to believe it will not be for the, for the foreseeable future. Um, first, what is race? Race as a concept is pretty simple. And this is the idea is that your heredity, if I know where you come from, uh, I know a lot about you. In fact, I know almost everything that's important that I need to know about you is derived from your heredity. And however I define that, however I can track that down, that lets me know who you are. So that somebody from China, who's an Asian, one of our distinctions that makes no sense, uh, is going to be fundamentally different from somebody from Africa, for, for instance. And that those differences come from heredity. They're inherited from mother, father, parents, to children, and handed down. Uh, it's important to note that race is entirely and completely mythological. There is nothing, zero, no evidence whatsoever for the existence of anything even remotely associated with this concept. Now, having said that, the social construct of race is incredibly powerful. So you have this completely unfounded belief combined with an unbelievably powerful, powerful social construction that influences our thinking about the world in profound, disturbing, and befuddling ways. I and mean, one of the problems with racism as a concept, or race as a concept, is it completely baffles us. We get all kinds of things wrong that really aren't confusing if we don't come at them with this psychological overlay or pattern of thought that, that is based on concepts of race. Um, so first, just to give you an idea, the, the, the idea of race, one of the ideas we have is that, oh, people have always been racist. Well, one, two issues here. One, no, that's not true. And two, um, nobody ever has ever agreed on what the races are. And, and so when, when you had the, the uh, uh, Rwanda genocides, most outsiders could not tell who was killing whom. Like, well, what is this? Because we don't know. You couldn't, you couldn't, to them it was obvious, right? And, and so those sorts of distinctions very dramatically, both geographically today and throughout history. But even given that, the notion that your heredity, however expressed in skin color or hair color or geography, is the most important thing about you, is not that widespread. A couple of examples. Um, 
in Greek, the ancient Greeks, who were hugely in love with the ancient Greeks, <laughs> meant that the word barbarian, we get the word barbarian, is derived from the Greek word from those who babble. And what they meant was those people who don't speak Greek. The converse of that is, if you spoke Greek, you weren't a barbarian. And so it was not a ethnic or it was a cultural concept. If you adopted the Greek ways, learned to speak Greek and lived as a decent civilized human being, you were Greek. Congratulations. If you didn't, you were dirt, unless you were Persian or Egyptian. They sort of had respect for the Persians and they had respect for the Egyptians, but everybody else, dirt. Um, this is not based on race because you could be uh, a, a Greek-speaking Egyptian who is very dark-skinned and they would love you. You could be a non-Greek-speaking Egyptian who didn't follow the rules that the Greeks liked and they would say you were a barbarian. This is, heredity had nothing to do with it. Education, civilization had everything to do with it. Where you lived, how you lived, how you dressed, how you spoke, determined who you were. Not a racial concept, uh, pretty much. Uh, the, the Romans were famous for, I mean, they called it the Roman Empire because it was about Rome. That, that was it. Rome was what it was about for the first couple, you know, five or six hundred years. It was Rome, 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 Rome. If, it, if you weren't from Rome, you just didn't matter. See, for us, we can't conceptualize a city as a race. And this is not how they thought about it. Because if you became a Roman citizen, good on you. They didn't care where you came from, basically. And what they would do, particularly when you get in the imperial era of Rome, they would conquer some place, and they would bring the children of the elites back to Rome and Romanize them. A, this made them hostages. Always good to have the hostages. Uh, but B, you turned them into Roman citizens. And often they would stay and intermarry with noble Roman families and become power players in the emperor, generals, and eventually they became emperors themselves. Again, it's the same distinction. If you're a peasant out working the fields, they didn't care where you came from. You could come from 20 miles outside of Rome, peasant working the fields, peasant, we don't like you. You don't count. But some Germanic, the son of a Germanic lord, from often the dark forests of, of, of modern-day Germany, not Germany then, of course. Uh, hey, bring them back to Rome, raise them, educate them, teach them to speak Latin and be cool. Then, hey, Roman, marry them to our daughters, have kids, become <laughs> citizens, right? It would, they had no problem. In fact, not only did they have a problem with it, it was an active strategy. From all over the empire, North Africa, Egypt, um, Persia, you know, from everywhere. It was a consistent concept. So they didn't look at the world in, in, in terms of race, per se. They looked at it in terms of power and, and uh, education and, and civilization. Um, the, maybe the most extreme example is from the uh, Ottoman Turks, who uh, the Ottoman Turkish Empire, long-running, vast empire, was weird in some ways because it was polyglot, multi-ethnic, multi-everything. And the people who run it was a relatively small royal family. And so they had no indigenous support anywhere. Nobody supported them. So how did they stay in power? The Janissaries. And the Janissaries were a group of primarily military but also high-level civil servants who were either kidnapped, but actually they're basically attacks of children taken from all over the empire. 
And so the, if you were in part of the Ottoman Roman Empire, uh, Ottoman Roman, sorry, Ottoman Turkish Empire, your small city someplace, they would say, every year we need 10 orphans or kids you don't want. Um, and we'll collect them and we'll put them in the Janissaries. And then they raised them just to work for the imperial bureaucracy and military so that they had no kinship ties, they had no regional ties, they had no ethnic ties. The only ties they had was to, to, the, to the ruling elite. Now, you don't do this, and they did it from all over the Ottoman, from the Balkans to the Sudan, I mean, for the vast area. If you have a racial idea, well, you say, those Balkan kids are no good. We wouldn't take them. No, they took everywhere. Because for most of human history, you don't have the kind of concept of race that we have because, one, you didn't have a good concept of the world. You knew your kin. We had kinship ties. That's what the world was about. You might have some local ties, people in my village, people in my valley, but the people from the next valley are the people you don't like because they're almost certainly the people you're going to have conflict with. If you get too far away, hell, I don't know anything about you because I don't travel, I'm not educated, and in much of the world it would be illegal for me to leave the plot of land where I live. So I don't, have, I, don't, I don't know enough about the world to have the concept of these large groups of people. You might have us, and by us you meant my family and the people that live here, and them, the entire rest of the universe. That is much more the thought pattern of people throughout history. Now there has been some other examples of sort of racist ideas. The Chinese had very much, we're the Chinese and everybody else sucks. Uh, but even they had sort of more diversity than that in fact. But the way we think about race is that this, there's these large groups of people whose their hereditary inheritance is what determines their nature. Um, that is newish and peculiarish. Uh, uh, but we have it in spades. So, sort of a rough history there. Um, genetically, now, now it's important to note that the racism came before the genetics. Genetics was just this like, oh, jackpot, now we can argue genetics for racism. This was the, this was the idea. And since nobody knows what the hell is going on with genetics, it was very convenient. Um, and so we combined a, a really bad social idea with really misapplied science uh, to produce a, a, a truly horrible idea and gave us all kinds of things like eugenics, um, a lot of fun eugenics, uh, you know, sterilizing the, um, the people we don't want. Genetically, I mean, you'll hear all kinds of numbers. Uh, they'll say, you know, human beings are 99.9% .9 similar. Not really. It depends on how you count. There's about a hundred ways you can count human genetic similarity. Diploid, haploids, chemical expression, uh, pairs, chromosomes. I mean, you can just do whatever you want. And, and so you'll get different numbers doing no matter what you want. Probably, you know, you can kind of say, okay, let's just say we're 99% similar, 1% different. If you just take that as a rough... <laughs> rough estimate, of that 1%, about 90 to 95% of that variation will be between individuals within a group. <clears throat> Almost all human variation occurs within groups, not between Africans and Europeans or Asians and uh, uh, you know, Pacific Islanders. That, that's not where the big variation is. 
Human beings have huge individual variation within a population that on average is practically identical. This is the interesting thing about us. So this is why you get lots of short people, tall people. This is why human beings look so incredibly different is because we have lots of individual variation. We have lots of individual variation even within families. We have a lot of individual variation. And in theory, they have the closest, of course, genetic relationship. Uh, and so the whole genetic thing is completely and totally misleading. And it's been used to argue, oh, well, there's these certain genes that are inherited. Yes, there are. There are a few, and I mean a few genes. For instance, the genes for skin color, which is the one we love, um, is strongly selected for depending on environment because it's a huge survival advantage. Uh, if, you're, if you're in the tropics, you want dark skin, particularly if you're in incredibly sunny locations in the tropics. If you're someplace that's cold and snowy and doesn't get a lot of light, you want white skin. And so the selection for there is incredibly heavy. But if you start at the equator and you travel north or south, what you'll find is this infinite gradation of skin color. There is no dramatic shift of genes. It's not like a switch that goes on and off. It's, it's gradated almost exactly to whatever the amount of sun exposure your average population is receiving. And then that is passed on. It turns out to be highly selective and very heritable. But is that a big deal? And we'll talk about this. But basically, genetic variation between individuals large, genetic variation between groups of people small. It's just that we've cued in culturally on, on a few of those and said those are the ones that are matter. <clears throat> now, this is so senseless and befuddling that, that it leaves us just, we don't, we just think silly wrong things. And I'll just give you a couple of examples, which I love. Um, start with Tiger Woods. He's the greatest example. Uh, an American, an African-American, we would say. Um, who is the greatest African-American golfer of all time? Tiger Woods, without doubt. Who is the greatest Asian golfer of all time? <laughs> Tiger Woods, <laughs> without doubt. Tiger Woods' mother was, is from Thailand. Born in Thailand, raised in Thailand. Tiger Woods' father, from America, very mixed race background. Tiger Woods may not even be 30% African, although I'm going to put that in big quotes because we'll talk about what the hell African means anyway. So he is, he is an Asian golfer. <laughs> he is at least 50% Asian. He is not, why do we call him an African-American golfer? Why? Because one, we know Asians can't play sports. <laughs> it's so facto, if you're a great athlete, you are, by definition, not an Asian. Right? We know this. Culturally, we know this is true. B, we know that Africans are great athletes. That's why you have all these great African-American golfers through history. <laughs> See how bizarre? It's just, it's, it's completely wrong-headed. But he's a little bit dark-skinned, and a little bit dark-skinned means you're an African-American, whatever the hell that means. 
And we cannot really accept the fact. In fact, Tiger Woods actually, early in his career, mentioned it several times that he was, in fact, his mother was Thai, he was an Asian golfer, he played in Thailand. And was, the press just go silent. And then they would ask him, oh, well, how about you know, the, the example you set for you know, African-American kids to go play golf? And he's like, well, you know, Asian kids too. And they're like, so those African-American kids, you know? And he's like, well, okay, screw it, right? I give up. They can't, because we, we can't process it. We can't process it that he's actually the greatest living Asian golfer. He's the greatest Asian golfer in history. Number two is probably Vijay Singh, who we don't think is being maybe Asian. We don't know. It's very, very dubious. Um, another example of this, Africa is the great example, is, uh, and then we'll move on from Africa after a couple of these. Uh, imagine that a, a white South African comes to the United States, marries a white woman or a white man, has a child, African-American child. No. No. We would not say this is an African-American child. It would be true in the sense that someone from Africa had a child in America. But they would be dead white. And we know there are no white people in Africa. Because <laughs> that's what it means to be African is not white. Right? Perfectly clear. The fact that, of course, we all came from Africa, and not very long ago, uh, which is why we're also genetically similar on average, um, it doesn't seem to matter at all. Right? This is, it's, just, it's just bizarre and wrong-headed, but we know we could never say, if, some, if that person said African-American on their college application forms or whatever, people would go, well, you can't put that down. <laughs> so, well, my mom's from Africa, or my dad's from Africa. They said, no, but that doesn't matter, because they're, they're not the right kind of African. <laughs> or the, right? Uh, it turns out there are white people in Africa, you know, um, yeah. Uh, another example, again, Africa, um, a couple of years ago, the, Many NFL players, National Football League players, often African-American, um, go to Africa and do, do volunteer work and charity work, which is great and wonderful and is an interesting and, and helpful thing. And they, but they often come back, um, and this happened a couple of years ago, they went to Kenya and a couple other East African places, and they, you know, they're doing great work. So it's not a criticism of the work they're doing, but it's the mindset. And they said, wow, you know, it's great to go to Africa, you know, sort of to get in touch with the roots and feel the environment and see the people, you know, where we came from. It's like, well, let me give you an example. Imagine if my great-great-grandparents came from New York. And I said, I'm going to go to Paris to get in touch with my roots. You would say, that is stupid. <laughs> because Paris and the French are not like the New Yorkers in America. In fact, they're 3,000 miles apart-ish. It is further from Kenya, where many of the players went, to West Africa, where almost all American slaves that were imported in the United States came from. It's further from there, Kenya to West Africa, than it is from New York to Paris. It's 3,500 miles, 3,500 miles across Africa. They were in exactly the wrong place. In fact, that's where I, I gave you the map on the back there to give you a sense of the scale of Africa. To get it on the, on, the, on the paper, I had to sort of squeeze it a bit. But if you can see that, 
Inside of the map of Africa, you have China, the United States, India, Mexico, Peru, France, Spain, Papua New Guinea, Sweden, Japan, Germany, Norway, Italy, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Greece. Africa is titanically large, spectacularly, supremely, amazingly large. Unimag I mean, it's just huge. And culturally diverse, equally so. See, we're happy to say Africa is Africa because we know there's all these, you know, basically ignorant black people with no culture that live there. So you can just say Africa. So the notion that New York and Paris are the same and that I would get in touch with my roots if I went back to Paris, we know that's absurd. Different languages, different history, different culture, different art, different people. But Africa, which has vastly more cultural diversity, by the way, vastly more linguistic diversity, more history, just people been there longer for no other reason. You know, the notion that like Egypt and the Sudan and Ethiopia and South Africa and Gabon and the Central Africa, that all these places are roughly the same, is is risible. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous. So when we say African American, you might as well say Planet Earther person, <laughs> because so much because we all came from there anyway, and it's so vast that it doesn't narrow it down at all. It's, it really doesn't help narrow. What we really mean, of course, is it's just code for those dark-skinned people, which is why you can't have white Africans. Because that's wrong. And, and you can't have very light-skinned Africans, like all of North Africa, or much of it, Egypt. You know, we don't even think of those places practically, I think, at times as being really African. They're not really African. Saudi Arabia, is that really Africa? No. <laughs> you know, that's just... I, it, 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 it's, it's, that's, that's not Africa anymore, right? It ends someplace. Where does it end? Where does it start? Madagascar? Is that Africa? It's bigger than Great Britain. But in our minds, how big is this? You know, a teeny tiny island. I always think it was roughly the size of Hawaii. <laughs> it is not roughly the size of Hawaii. You know, it's immense. And that's just teeny tiny Madagascar compared to the continent of Africa. And notice where we draw these continental lines are random. Like I said, there really is no place such as Africa. There's this huge landmass that we draw random lines around and say, well, it stops here. The Middle East is not part of Africa. It's not even in the middle. It's not even in the middle. Yeah. So, so you know, why? why? Why does it stop and start certain places? Who decides? It's a great question that they all, you know, I mentioned in my lecture on Russian language, is Russia part of Europe? Sure, just draw the map, circle it, yeah. Or is Europe part of Russia? Draw it the other way, here we go. It's all Russian frontiers, right? See, it's, it's, it's arbitrary. I mean, there is a place called Russia, the boundaries keep changing, like every place else. But we know there are these people, the Russians, who are a certain way. We don't like them right now. So Vladimir Putin is the Russian, 
We don't like Putin. Ipso facto, all Russians are untrustworthy, aggressive, uh, and, and bad. If we like them, then they become friendly and wonderful and great. And then we go, bad, great, bad, great throughout history. Are they just Europeans? They used to say, oh, they're just Europeans. A little backwards, a little funny, but they're just like us. And then we said, no, 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 no. They're the communists. They're not like us at all. And then we said, no, we like them again. Then we went, no, and now we're not sure. <laughs> right? It's just, but by the way, Russia is pretty much bigger than Africa. I mean, <laughs> Russia is huge. And the notion that there is Russian people who are a Russian way is, again, it's just absurd. It's ridiculous. Vast territory, vast history, many languages, many cultures, many ideas. But this is what befuddles us. That's why I say it totally confuses us. So if we get somebody, a white African, that's no good. A friendly, sober Russian, well, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> right? What, what, what's, the, what's the use of that? You know, we can't, we can't process it. Um, so it just, it completely boggles our mind. So if we, if we move the other way, um, I, I have a list here of the countries that we've, uh, basically every country that's ever, every group that's ever immigrated to the United States, we've decided we hate at some time. So we hated the Italian and the Irish really bad for a while, partly because they're Catholic, partly because they weren't Europeans. <laughs> this is true. We did not consider them real Europeans. They were subhuman. They were ape-like subhumans and Catholic. That's a bad combination. Um, but all of a sudden, we decided we love Italians. We love the Irish. That's great. Why? We don't know, because our cult, its cultural perception has changed. Um, it's a whole new thing. But the one I like is the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, prohibited Chinese immigration and created barriers to China's argument. And the Immigration Act of 1924 prohibited all, quote unquote, Asians. And then we get this list, Japan, China, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, Singapore, Koreans. And the reason you don't want Koreans and Chinese and Japanese in your country is because you can't educate them. They will not learn. They're completely incapable of gathering technical skills that are valuable or learning any of the higher math. No, this is the specific argument for why. Asians are the only group that have ever been by law specifically excluded from immigrating. We've never even said that about Africans which is sort of, you know, amazing considering our history with slavery. Though, you know, that was always okay, even when we didn't really want them here. But Asians, because they're so ignorant and they have no possibility of educating them, you don't want them in your country. Well, now we've just reversed that, right? We're trying to figure out why are Asians so superior to us? They just come out of the womb knowing math. <laughs> right? That's just somehow in the, there they float around in the amniotic Asian fluid with calculus. And ipso facto, they're these geniuses. There's no evidence for either, of course. They are neither superior nor inferior at mathematics, nor is anybody else. There's never been any evidence, except possibly Hungarians, as being <laughs> inferior or superior at mathematics. It is, it is clearly and almost totally cultural, and we'll talk about this, but we just can't deal with that. So they used to not, don't let them in because they're totally ignorant, you can't teach them. They're incapable specifically of technical knowledge. Two, 
No, no, no. We want them because Asians, those are the good immigrants. Those are the ones that can learn everything and they're super smart and they're the top of the IQ bell curve or whatever the nonsense is of the day. So yeah, we just, again, it befuddles our capacity to understand the world because we do this overlay of race that continuously we just get everything wrong. Um, part of this, and, and this is where it gets particularly curious to me, is the United States is the ground central of the multi-billion dollar genealogy industry. So I have two, the, the front page there is uh, two ads from the homepages of two different genealogies. One is family history is in our DNA, what's in yours, which is sort of a, a curious construction, <laughs> uh, by the way. Get personalized details about your ethnic origins. Discover more about your story with advanced DNA science from the experts in family history. That's from Ancestry.com. Or bring your ancestry to life through your DNA. I, I think this is sort of uh, Jurassic Park-esque for your, for your ancestors. Discover your ancestral origins and trace your lineage with personalized analysis of your DNA. Ancestry composition, family tree tool, DNA relatives, maternal and paternal lineages, Neanderthal percentage. <laughs> I like that one. They just pitched that one in for fun. They can't test for that. They're lying their ass off. Uh, but... Um, but here's the idea, but this is a, by the way, this is a multi-billion dollar industry that is almost exclusively American. No other country does this. If they do it, they do it, it's like a niche, it's like train collecting or something, right? So it's this little teeny tiny niche interest. Uh, but for the United States, it is huge. The Mormons, I mean, this is what the Mormons are apparently doing all the time. They're converting us retroactively, it's great. Um, but it's, it's, it's this, desire to construct identity by discovering your past, genetic past. What the hell could that possibly mean? That here, it's so weird. And the specific things, I've seen people do these family trees, um, and they don't want the history per se. They just want to know, oh, look, my great-great-grandmother's my sister was from Ireland, and my great-great-grandfather's brother was from Denmark and my uncle, you know, whatever, and then that means I'm something. <laughs> but this notion that influence comes that way, this is the heredity thing. And then, of course, we all want to be from good places, and of course, where the good places are changes. Nobody 100 years ago would want Irish ancestry. No, 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 no. No, you do not want that. And then now we do. Yeah, oh, yeah, Irish, good, 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 right? That would be great. Nobody, you know, wanted Jewish ancestry, and now people do. Uh, as if this matters, but, but we have this concept. To put it in perspective, think of it this way. Uh, who cares who your ancestor is, if, but at some point if you have ancestors who were Catholic and they became Protestant, and so your family is Protestant, this has an immense influence on your experience growing up. Similarly, if it's the other way around, if, 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 if they stayed Catholic or if they became Catholic, so you're raised Catholic. It's not genetics, it's the culture. This is what you inherit to the important that it's, that it's significant at all. Um, and, and by the way, if you're born in the United States, you're a Native American. <laughs> right? This is the definition of Native American. Now we've reserved Native American for another concept, which we'll talk about. <laughs> Equally wrong, 
equally befuddling of us. But for some reason, saying, where are you from? You know, I don't need to go to all the ancestry genealogy stuff. I know where I'm from. I was born in the United States, unless my mom's lying, which could be, but I believe her. <laughs> right? But that's not good. That's not really a place to be from. Right? The United States is not really someplace you're from. You're from someplace else. Yeah, Africa. You just keep going back. And I can tell you where all ancestry.com, where we end up is Africa. Just a matter of time. Just keep going. In fact, not that long ago, as it turns out. So this heritage industry stuff, again, is this, oh, we want identity, which we'll talk about. Um, two more examples of how this overwrites and, and helps us misunderstand the world uh, immensely is, is Barack Obama, who's a wonderful example. Because if anybody's African-American, it's Barack Obama. <laughs> African dad from Africa, the place itself. I think Nigeria, right? Yeah, Nigeria. Uh, and, and American mom, Kansas, that's America, right? That's real America, heartland America. And so there you go. So that's what's important about him. Here's some facts for you. Barack Obama is the 44th man to be president. We're on a roll. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> right? But that turns out not to matter. He's the 25th lawyer to be president. That's not important. He's the sixth guy from Harvard. Not important. He's the 16th senator. Senator. Not important. Fourth guy from Illinois, depending how you score. <laughs> Who cares? No, it's the fact that he's an African-American. That's the most important detail about him. We don't need to know any of that other stuff. He's not a white president because he's half black. <laughs> well, he's half African. And so there's actually claims that he's not African-American enough because he was raised by white parents, which is hilarious. Because if he was raised by white parents, but he's half African, which is really African, because in America, you know, a lot of people who are African-American aren't even close to half African because of, you know, history of slavery, which we'll talk about. I mean, what the hell could that mean? Right? That culturally, he's not really African-American, but genetically, he is. What? See how baffling this becomes? And, and Obama himself, they, they were asking during, I forget, one of his runs for office, they said there's this idea that white people say they'll vote for a black politician, and when they get in the voting booth, they don't actually do it. And so they asked him if he had this struggle, and he said, oh, yeah. You know, I don't know if I'm going to vote for me or not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's just, it's just great. Um, uh, finally, last example is I want to take this out of the racial realm because what happens is this thought pattern of trying to identify large groups of people and identifying their significant traits based on these grouping maps off of race into other things. One of the things, the example that sprang to my mind was homosexuality. Now, the idea that homosexuality exists, different from race, which is nice, um, but the question is, does it matter? You can go through the history of the world, you can't hardly find a time when anybody cared. Now, it might have been illegal. That didn't really seem to matter. But whether or not you like to sleep with women or men or whatever didn't seem to define you. Indeed, 
if in most of recorded history, the Persians, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, if the Egyptians to a certain extent, you know, it's about records more than of, of what we know. If you tried to tell somebody, well, I know who you're sleeping with, therefore I know the kind of person you are, everyone would have thought you were an idiot. <laughs> right? That the, probably the most significant thing about a person is not whom they sleep with. But what we've done is we've extended the logic of racism. If I know your ethnic origin, if I know your color of your skin, then I know who you are. I know all the important things about you I need to know. We've just mapped that onto this. Oh, I, if, you have, if you're a homosexual, well, then I know everything about you. I know everything important about you. You're going to be a certain way. You're going to be a certain kind of person. Right? And so you get this whole identity group politics, right? which, is, which is understandable in some ways, but insidious. It's, it's just a significant type of racism. It's the logic translated. So it just consistently befuddles our thinking about the world. Um, where does this come from, this question? One way to think about this, not the only way, but a significant way, is to start with the Reformation. Like I said, if you go to Europe before the Reformation, everybody's some flavor of Catholic. Now, this was an immensely diverse, and there were heretics, and there was different languages, and all. but everybody sort of had this notion, we're all Catholics. Now, the Muslims, they're bad. <laughs> they're over there. Hopefully, they'll stay over there. Um, Chinese, gee, we vaguely know about them, but you know, mostly it was an inward-looking world. We believe that we're all kind of sort of one family. And if we had wars, of which we had an infinite number, it was not based on nations, which didn't exist. It was based on city-states and kinship relationships and small regions, all fighting over all kinds of different things. Hugely confusing. In fact, if you try to read the history of the time, it's immensely confusing because we can't figure out who's doing what to whom and why. Because it's not organized. So you have a duke might have in totally displaced pieces of land hundreds of miles apart. And he might be at war with someone who had chunks of land in different places, but they're both related to somebody because their aunt you know, married the brother-in-law. And so there's a succession battle, and one of them's trying to become the pope. Right? Like, what? And so we have all these interleaving, crazy connections of trade and money and land, but they weren't. They weren't geographically organized. They weren't even politically clear to us what exactly they were trying to achieve all the time. But with the Reformation, you get the splitting of the world, <coughs> particularly if you look at the Inquisition where on the Iberian Peninsula you had the Moorish civilization. You had the last outreach of an early in, uh, uh, arrival of Islam into Europe, if you want to call it Iberian Peninsula Europe. Again, what the hell does that even mean? Um, uh, into Europe. And the, the Spanish, which Spain did not exist at the time, but they had succeeded in getting rid of the um, Muslims. But this left them with a large Islamic population and a large Jewish population. Because Islam at that point had been very tolerant of Jews. In fact, the Jewish flourish, Jews flourished underneath Moorish occupation. Well, it's not really Moorish occupation. Uh, much of Spain is, is, was 
Islamic longer than it's been Catholic. It's important to remember that. So it was a very long run. Um, so the, the Spanish officials, for various reasons, were really terrified of this enemy within. There's these unconverted Jews. There's these sort of crypto-Islamic people who are going to do bad things to us. See how far back this goes? Uh, they're there. They're this, they're this infection that's breeding inside. And we've got to use the Inquisition. It's going to weed them out. And this really put an impetus on this notion twofold. One, that there are these groups, identifiable but large, who are different from us. They're Jews or the Muslims, and they're threatening. We have to get rid of, track them down and get rid of them. And so you get this whole spike in things like, Oh, Jews, they kidnap young men and they cut their throats and they do blood sacrifices and all of this. All of these no well poisonings, cattle, cattle. I mean, it's just all, the whole panoply of, of racist hate towards the Jews is rolled out. But it was against this notion of the infection of these different peoples. And then you add to that the Reformation, which broke the unity of Europe or the unity of the Catholic sort of whatever umbrella state, which was not really all that unified, but it sort of had this cohesiveness. Well, now you've got Protestants of 111 flavors, all the Catholics all fighting, you know, who's who, who's on whose side, and they start breaking this up. And so this is why when the Catholics show up, the, the Italians and the Irish, in America, the turn of the 1900s, there was so much hatred towards them because they're the other. We hate them because, in this case, it's a religious racial profile. All Spanish are Catholics. All Irish are Catholics. Before we hate them all, they're all drunkards and lazy and worthless. Um, and we know this. And so you get this, this reformation which splits up their sense of unity into large blocks. Before all these regional, local, small-scale determinations, were, they, they were just, like I said, really small, often city-state size. Well, now it's Catholic and Protestant. Whole nations, which are being formed under the pressure of the Reformation, now are, are seeing themselves as one group. We're the Protestants. We, we do, we're we're going to stay Catholic. We're going to have the dividing lines in Germany and Belgium along, you know, these sorts of issues, and then we're going to fight about that regionally and locally. I mean, it goes on for hundreds of years. You could argue it's still going on. Belgium, for instance, Walloons and such. Um, you have these troubles, and then you get immigration to the United States. You discover the new world blows everybody away, and so in, in the case of the United States, many of the early settlers famously are Calvinists, and they're coming over to found a perfect society free from the poisons of the old world where only the good people, and you had generally to be members of these societies, particularly in the New England coast, you had to pass sort of basically purity tests. Well, they didn't just take anybody. They only took the good people because they were going to this completely unpopulated land <laughs> to set a new civilization that would be founded on God's word, which turned out to be Protestant Calvinism. And then they found Native Americans who said, hello. Uh, and they said, wait a second. Who are these people? 
Now you have a choice. You can say, oh, well, let's live together, flourish together, whatnot, make this work. But that's hard to do when they're heathens who showed no interest in converting. And so this created this problem. So the, quickly, instantaneously, this debate breaks out inside Catholicism and the Spanish New World. We'll focus on America because it's mostly the Protestant New World. Are these people humans or subhumans? And this was an actual internal debate. And they finally decided they're subhuman heathens. This, this won the argument. And so right, I mean, from day one, essentially, we were a country founded on the notion that a whole vast group of people that were here are subhuman. They must be. One, because we want to take their land. And two, because they refuse to convert to the true religion. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to preach the true religion. Um, and so it, it's, you're right, again, it's in our sort of founding DNA, if you will. Uh, it's right there. It's a terrible, um, no, it's, you're, you're right there. So the Native Americans presented a challenge to the whole philosophical outlook of the Protestant Calvinists coming here to, to, to sign up. I mean, this was the, the new world, untouched, primordial, but happens to be filled with millions of heathens. In fact, one of the big spurs to the American Revolutionary War was not taxes, although that was there. One of the big spurs was the land. The king had said, look, the Native Americans are citizens of my empire. You can't just steal their shit. <laughs> they have the same rights as all of the other citizens of the empire. But the colonists said, no, no, no. They're subhumans. We are going to take their land. And if you try to prevent us, we're going to fight. And so there was a whole series of border wars that went on for years prior to the Revolutionary War and then continued on right after it, fought over this question with the British troops trying to defend the Native American land claims against the colonists who said they have no rights, they have no claims, primarily because they're just subhuman. They're not like us. They're different. We need to get rid of them. They just need to go someplace else. Always someplace else. A little further west. Just a little further west. Just a little further west. The second thing that's going on is you arrive in the New World. This is, this is more for the colonies uh, that were also um, founded primarily for economic reasons. And they came to the United States and they said, great, we're going to mine silver and gold, of which they found none. The Spanish had, had conquered that one. You know, they, they, got the, they, got the Spanish and, they got the gold and silver territories. But pretty soon they discovered tobacco growing was, who that's sort of green gold, if you will. Very labor intensive. A little later, of course, cotton. Extremely labor intensive. Where do you get the labor? First, they tried to enslave the native Indians. The problem there is that native Indians died a lot because of European diseases, and they just ran away. <coughs> So that's no good. So the next thing they tried were Irishmen, uh, because you have the religious wars going on, and so they were capturing lots of Irish. And said, oh, Irish, they'll make good slaves. No, it turns out they don't make good slaves. Um, one, they, they're, they're, they uh, would flee to any kind of Catholic stronghold they could find. So again, this whole Protestant Catholic thing doesn't go away instantly. This is particularly in the islands of the Caribbean this was going on. But even the United States, this problem, the dentured servants um, being troubling. 
And indentured servants didn't work very well because they would come over for a couple of years and they would be free. Well, if you're in a country that's extraordinarily short on labor and all of your main export crops are labor intensive, what do you have to do? You have to treat them well and pay them a lot to work your land. Well, that's not an option. So what they came up with was slavery. And so immediately, like Georgia, the colony that founds Georgia was founded as a non-slave colony. And that lasted roughly 25 minutes because they realized that they couldn't make a go of it without slaves. And so they had to change their charter. They had to say, hey, hey, recharter this so that we can get slaves in here and make a go of it. Well, how do you justify this? You justify it by saying, well, we're going to import the slaves, but they're Africans. In this case, is the vast increase in the African slave trade because uh, they're not really human. They're subhuman, they're not really like us. And you develop this philosophy of segregating people by race. Because notice how necessary that is. You can't do tobacco or cotton economically without vast pools of labor, which is either going to be expensive or it's going to be slave. We opted for slave. And you can't justify taking all the land from people without defining them as people who it's okay to take the land from. And again, part of what we thought the Revolutionary War was about was, no, those are the kind of people who aren't really citizens of the empire, despite what the king says in Parliament. And so it's right, I mean, it's built into the foundation and development of our entire social outlook. Think about it this way. We say Native Americans the same way we say Africans. It was a huge, America's pretty big, not as big as Africa, but sizable, and filled with hundreds, <coughs> if not thousands of languages and cultures with different histories and different poetry and different art and different architecture, different modes of life, different everything. But we say, oh, they're Native Americans and they're, they're more spiritual than us or they're more in touch with the land. And all this just crap, like there's this one group, right? The Native Americans, like the Africans, right? Anybody, right? No, they were not one group. But see, we can't hardly imagine them being like us, having a history with political leaders and rises and falls and scientific developments that didn't work out. And, and you know, some people are agriculture, some people are hunting and some people are fishing and some people are doing Plains Indian development. And, you know, it's just, again, it's a big place with lots of geographical niches and they're all doing all kinds of different stuff. Like Europe did, like the history of mankind does. Right, but it just befuddles. So we think, oh, they're Native Americans. Like, that, that was a, we just like, oh, wave our hands. All those millions of people who live different lives and different histories and different cultures are just, they're just them. Those people. Wave of our hand. And so what we lose, uh, not surprisingly when we do that, is access to that concept, to the notion that was this extraordinary diversity. But we don't want to know about that because we just rolled over it, Right? So we had to pretend like that didn't exist so we could justify rolling over it, so on and so forth. So it, 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 just, it just completely baffles our minds. And so then we've established who are the good people. The Protestants from Europe are the good people. 
And again, that's why when immigration rolls around, and it turns out to be the Irish and Italians, not from Europe, um, and Catholic, this huge outcry against this. We don't want these people in our country. They're bad people because they're not like us. And again, every single group that's immigrated to the United States has received exactly the same claims, by the way. It doesn't matter what group you come as, you always get the same slanders against you. This is one reason you know it's senseless. They're always lazy. So I love, I love this like Mexican immigration. We're against that now. Um, because they're lazy and they take all our jobs. <laughs> right? This is the charge. I think you can have one or the other. I don't know if you can have both. That's, it's always phenomenal to me. That, but we can sustain it because it makes no sense anyway. And so we're this bizarre country of immigrants with incredible diversity and an amazingly rich cultural history that underlays the arrival of Europeans. Now, as Native Americans, you would think we would find that fascinating. Sure, my ancestors came from Europe, but from where I'm from, has this 10,000-year ecological, uh, archaeological, um, architectural history. I'm from a country that goes back 10,000, not 200 years revolutionary, 300 years wide. No, it goes back thousands of years. We don't know anything about that. Because it's not about us. Because our heredity comes from someplace in Europe. No, no, no. Where you're from, if you're from the United States, has a thousand year history. I mean, more than that. It, it, thousands of years, millennially long history. With all kinds, again, art, poetry, everything you could want that we just ignore. Because we say, oh, that's not about us. Because I'm from someplace else. See how bizarre that is? I'm not from the place I'm from. I'm from someplace that I know some you know, hereditary connection to. Uh, it just throws us off and it obscures where we are and what's been here and, and, and what influences us in other ways. And it obscures the rest of the world from us. Like I said, the whole notion that Africa is a place is, is bizarre. And it's a place that has sort of one culture-ish. You know, it, it, it's just it's almost unimaginable unimaginably wrong in the case of Africa, of course. Um, but it is understandable because for our history, you have to understand when, when, when the, the Protestants come over, you arrive someplace, what the hell do you do? Notice one of the things that you've broken is your kinship bonds. And for most of human history, the way you defined yourself was through kinship. Like I said, the Ottoman Turks used their Janissaries were children taken from their homes when they were young because this made them reliable. They didn't have the kinship connections. That would, they would say, oh, well, you know, if I stab my boss, I can get my brother a job. In most of human history, you were expected to stab your boss if you could get your brother a job. That, that, that was what kinship meant in a way. You're much more reliable if you're someone who has no other connections. But with the exception of a few institutions like the Janissaries, for almost all of human history, people drew their identity from their immediate kin and their immediate surroundings because people weren't mobile. The United States was founded by people who left their kin and left their surroundings. They came to a new world. 
And it just completely, wow, blew them away. But now how do you build your identity? Well, it's them and us. It's us against these people who weren't supposed to be here to begin with um, and who refused to convert to our ideas. And so it's the goodies and the baddies. And we've stuck with this because we're trying desperately to build an identity. And if you think, bizarrely, that your identity is not where you're from, which is where you're from, then you, you create this sort of mythological background for, for where we come from, who we are, what really influences you. It's hereditary. It's genetic, right? Bring your ancestry to life through your DNA. This is the literal idea. You know, if you find out who you are, find out who your kin are by knowing that 400 years ago, your great aunt was from Lithuania. What? Another way to think about this is the obverse of this, which is the cultural influences, which are real and powerful and palpable. If your family comes from Mexico, you come over from Mexico, and your family continues to speak Spanish at home, that's a huge cultural influence on you. Now, it doesn't make you Mexican, because if you grow up in the United States, you're going to be different from people who grew up culturally in Mexico. Right? There will be a tension there. And generation and generation, that tension can grow and, and recede. And, you, and the influence might be strong. But notice, if you're born in the United States and you move to Mexico, you'll be very much more Mexican. Because, again, the cultural influence will be so strong. And if you grow up, as I did, someplace with a very large Hispanic population, for me, Christmas is not Christmas without tamales. <laughs> Because that's the way they did it in Europe. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's because culturally, all the people around me ate tamales at Christmas time. Plus, tamales are just awesome. Uh, and, and, and so you get this idea, you get used to this culturally. No, I have no genetically, as far as I know, I don't really know, but I don't think I have a lot of genetic connection with Mexico or Spain. But I have a cultural connection that's much stronger quite palpable. I don't have to go to my DNA and look it up. I can look at my freezer at, at Christmas time and go, jackpot, I'm winning. Right? Or, or, or think again, kids transferred at birth, which happens. You know, if you're born in uh, the United States, but somehow you end up in Korea and are raised in Korean from a small child, now it'll be a little strange because you look different. And really, that's what we like about race, right? Is we want to look at people and know who they are, which, of course, never works, but that's what we like to do. Well, you would be very, very, very Korean, even though you were raised there. You're, there's not going to be some efflorescence of, of genetic outpouring that when you turn 16, you begin speaking English fluently and say, I can't do math anymore. <laughs> right? It's just, it's not going to happen. And, and this has been done, by the way, one of my favorite studies is, is um, African-American soldiers who went to World War II, married or had children with German women. Some of those kids stayed in Germany with their German mothers, sometimes with the fathers. Some of those families immigrated to the United States to live in African-American communities because we're heavily segregated. 
And it turns out that the kids in Germany did just like the kids in Germany did, and the kids in America did just like the kids in America did, who were from their neighborhoods. And Germany is not the least racist country in the world, by the way. So, um, you know, that, that, even given those sorts of roadblocks, they basically did as well as their, as their peer groups. And, you know, so it's culture, culture, culture. And so we, we lose that. Somehow we want to look back to cultures we have little or perhaps no connection with and find identity there, when, which bizarrely, we live in one of the most culturally rich societies in the history of the world, with languages and, and interests and, I mean, everything. It's here, it's, you know, in America, sort of the non-melting pot. Right? Uh, and, and so finally, okay, good. So finally, um, the part of this you have to keep in mind, too, is the power, though, of the social construct of race is incredible. People, you know, what's the defining feature of America? One of them is this. You know, think, think of the American contribution to the arts in the 20th century. Jazz. Rock and roll. You know? Where did those come from? African-American community. How is that possible? Think about how unlikely that is that a very small subset of your population, rap music, whatever you think of it, hugely influential in the world. A small subset of our population has produced in a hundred years three incredibly influential world-altering <coughs> art forms. Four if you count blues. That's excellent. Four if you count blues. Think, I mean, why? Because of the racist, racial construction of our culture and our mindset, we have, in fact, created racial subgroups. And, you know, the tensions and, and the problems of that continue. They, they're not absorbed. It, it does continue. There are these disparities and these differences, and everybody goes, well, how, where do these differences come from? And, you know, the people, oh, you know, the IQ, and, you know, it must be genetic or it must be racial. Well, no, it's racial concept. It's constructing an outlet of the world that is culturally different. Why do Asian, particularly early Asian immigrants, not all Asian immigrants, by the way, but early Asian immigrants do better in school, particularly in math? One, because they don't know English that well. Two, because they come from cultures that put an unbelievable emphasis on education. China has had exams for, you know, a couple thousand years, literally. They've got a lot of practice. Culturally, they believe in them. We've had exams for oh, 50, and we don't believe in them. Uh, you know, it's, and so if you come from a culture that says study hard for an exam that determines things, you know what, you do well on exams. Just like if you come from a culture that says, you know, work hard bouncing a basketball, you'll learn to bounce a basketball. It's not confusing. Um, but it baffles us endlessly because we, have, because we continually return to these notions of race. Homosexuals are a certain way. And, he, and there's the whole argument within the homosexual community that must be genetic. It's like, maybe, but what the hell? Right? So you, you want your genes to turn. You want to be a racial stereotype. It's bizarre. Now I'm not saying there's not a genetic component to it, because there is. Certainly, there is a genetic component to having black skin. There's a genetic component to all kinds of things. 
The question is, are those the important things about a human being? No. The answer, by the way, if you're wondering. No, it's not. <laughs> it is not the important things about being a human being. You know, are you kind? Do you shoot your neighbors? You know, are you contributing to your community? Are you pleasant to be with? These are the important things. Have been the important things all throughout history. But again, because we live in this incredible uh, social umbrella, a, a psychological outlook that emphasizes race in every way, all kinds of ways. By the way, we're one of the few countries or some countries that do it, but notice how often you have to fill out your race on forms. This is bizarre. It's truly bizarre. But it matters because it is a social construct. And we really believe in the social construct, so you put it on the forms. But if I put down there I'm a Martian, <laughs> they'll go, well, that's not true. But I can put down there I'm from Africa. What the hell? Right again, there is no place as Africa in that sense. I can put down, I'm a Native American from Native America land. <laughs> you know, I, what? You know, what culture is Native America land from? It's, it really serves this Disney land of the future. Of, what is it? What's the theme park, right, where they have all the cultures, or not all of them, but some of them represented, right? Uh, it, it's just crazy and nonsensical. Um, and, and so this is one of the things that really defines how we look at the world. And because of our peculiar history and because of our um, peculiar foundation, on this as a principle, this need to segregate off the, the slaves, the need to segregate off the Native Americans, the need to determine who is good and be allowed in the communities and into the churches and who's bad and needs to be burned as a heretic and a witch at the stake, this inside-outside, who's good, who's bad, often, if not invariably, by skin color and other distinctive traits, um, has created this pernicious and ongoing uh, unbelievably uh, influential outlook on our culture. So, so sort of keep this in mind. If, if one thing I can say is just return to what I said at the beginning, it, it, there is no evidence that this exists at all. Nobody is inferior, nobody is inferior or superior. Everybody is roughly equal genetically. I mean, there's huge individual variation. But there is no reason to believe those variations define populations, because they, they really turn out not to. Unless you think somebody's skin color or height or eye color is the most important thing about them. Um, and there just doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence for that at all. So there you go, race in America. Thank you. <laughs> uh,